God does not call us to frustration. If we cry out to him, if we seek him, we will find him if we seek for him with all of our hearts. Please join me in the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible. The book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. What's true? This book, the Bible, says that we are marching with Jesus as our captain. We are marching to an eternal kingdom in which righteousness dwells. We are marching to an eternal kingdom in which Jesus himself, we are told in Revelation 21, that he will tabernacle among us. And it will be a day followed by a day followed by a day. Please cleanse your mind of any concept of a nirvana as if you just go floating away. No, it will be in the same way that you feel things with your fingers now you will be able to touch, see, hear, smell, taste the reality of that eternal kingdom. And when we step into that eternal kingdom, the only, the only, the only thing that will matter is what did I do in service to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods, Jesus of Nazareth, who himself came as a servant. He modeled for me. He modeled for me what he anticipated from me. A servant is not better than his master. Is enough that a servant be like his master, be like me. And as Jesus stood before his persecutors, he stood having given himself to their control, at least superficially to their control, God is master of all things. 
but he offered himself to them. And what was the outcome? An empty tomb. He came out of the tomb and then 40 days later ascended to the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that is what he is calling us to. We who rightly deserve what is said at the very close of this letter, this statement by Jesus to the church of Samaria, we deserve the second death. The second death is the lake of fire. Justice would put us there. Instead, justice fell upon Jesus on the cross. He took all of the lake of fire due to the entire human race for an eternity on that cross so that his Holy Father would be entirely free to forgive. So that we might step into by his help, by his mercy, by his provision, by his granting to us a spirit of repentance. Let me tell you folks, if you turn to Jesus, you turn to Jesus because Jesus grabbed you by the nape of the neck and made it happen. That's how aggressive he is in his mercy. And then he calls upon us to imitate him. And that's where we cringe. Until we see and lay hold of that great incentive that he sets before us. and incentivizes us to keep putting one foot in front of the other at all times of testing, regardless of the degree of those tests, that we continue to worship him. You know what victory is? Victory in the Christian life is very, very simple. It's called worship. It's called worship. Naked came I into this world. Naked I'm going out. Blessed be the name of the Lord, said Job in the midst of his tests. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that is victory, was victory for Job. That is the definition of victory for us. And that is what Jesus is calling the church at Smyrna to. And by their example, this is not just meant for them, it's meant for all of God's people. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last. All things ultimately come back to me. I am the first. It was God the Son who stepped out and said, let there be light. I'm the first and I'm the last. Everything is wrapped up. It begins with me and it is all wrapped up with me. And in that eternal reign of mine, attention will be brought to me. And God the Father and God the Holy Spirit will delight in the attention that comes to me and they will revel in it. And it will not be over... You know, we've all been in situations where people were over-complimented. We will never over-worship God. We will ha never have a sense that, okay, we've done enough. No, because we will then see God more as he really is than ever before. He will give us eyes to see more clearly with greater depth, and we will see and enjoy and revel in worship.
These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And so when the persecutor says to the persecuted, don't you know I am in charge of you? We can say, oh, no, you're not. In fact, the scripture says, my God holds your very breath in his hand. My God holds your very breath in his hand. I am the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And how did the Father come through for the Son? Took him out of that tomb. He spent 40 days, which is the number of testing, 40 days disclosing himself to his disciples and a few unbelievers too. His own brothers came to faith in Christ after his resurrection and then elevated to the right hand of the Father, which is the place of power, place of authority. And he's not been twiddling his thumbs since then. He's been exercising that authority, enlarging his kingdom, the church. Who was dead and came to life. How do I know that though I am killed, I will come to life because it would happen before our Lord Jesus Christ? I know your works. In every one of these seven letters to these seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he says, I know your works. I am aware of what you have done. I'm not overlooking it. I am counting it. I'm looking at it. I know your works, tribulation, your testing, your trouble. I know about it. What is our instant cry when something bad happens? Lord, aren't you watching? Aren't you looking? Yes. In the same way that the Father was looking upon the Son as he hung on on the cross. And we were told in John chapter 19, not one of his bones was broken. Because the Father was so governing the experience of of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that when the soldiers of Herod Antipas punched him in the face, they didn't break the orbital ridge, they didn't break his nose, they didn't break his jaw, they didn't break his teeth. They beat him bloody but they could press their fists into his face no further than they had divine permission. And when the Roman soldiers drove the nails into the hands of our Lord Jesus, by the way, the Greek word for hand is from here to here, is from the tip of the finger to the elbow. They drove the nail into the wrists where you have the hollow place so that it won't pull out. There's a lot of bones there. But so did the Father govern the angle of the nail and the placement of the nail that none of his bones were broken and when they laid his feet one on top of another and drove that nail through the fragile bones of the foot not one was broken and when they drove a spearhead through his rib cage I can't put a 30 caliber bullet through the rib cage of a white tailed deer without breaking a rib they shoved a spearhead through his rib cage and did not break a bone. And when they broke the legs of the men 
crucified with him. They did not break his legs because having shoved the spear through his ribcage, they saw that the fluids were separating. And these Roman soldiers, if they understood one thing, were experts on anything, it was death. They saw that the fluids were separating, which was the sure sign that he had died. And so there was no need to break his legs. But that was also governed by God as a demonstration of his absolute care. And so it is for us in our suffering. Not one cell can be touched, not one part of our soul can be touched without divine permission. For God's ultimate glory. And while we immediately, are, our natural reaction is, God, are you paying attention? Yes. My focus is never off of you. Ever. It's with you entirely. I know your works, your tribulation, your trouble, your testing, and your poverty. Apparently, this church particularly was not financially well off. Oh, but you're not poor. You're rich. You're rich. By heaven's accounting, you are rich. And which accounting would you prefer to be the accounting? When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I don't care how big your bank account was. You will only care about how big your bank account is in the heavenly treasury. You are rich. This is one of the, I believe, just two churches, this church and the sixth church, the Philadelphia church. They're the only ones that are not rebuked in any way. I know your poverty. And yet I would dare say, if you had done a guided tour of these seven churches, you would look at the church at Smyrna and, oh well, probably the poorest and the least memorable from the standpoint of by which men typically judge things. But Jesus says, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Those who have been persecuting you and saying blasphemous things about you and about especially your Savior, whom they hate. He saved himself, he, himself, he saved others himself, he cannot save, said Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest standing at the foot of Jesus' cross. They blasphemed Jesus. Listen to the fullness of their expression. He saved himself. I mean, excuse me, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. They just admitted to everything they had been denying. Earlier in John chapter 12, it's disclosed that they had actually put Lazarus on the hit list. They determined that they needed to murder Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, because he was just too powerful a proof to Jesus' claims. So we must kill him. 
I would dare say that they have demonstrated disinterest in the evidence. They say they are Jews, but they are not. They don't actually embrace the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They do not embrace the faith of King David. They do not embrace the faith of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. If they did, they would be members of the Church of Smyrna. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. And I can remember, I think, the first time I ever read that statement, I thought, wait a minute, Lord, that's what I'm afraid of is suffering. Let's not do that. Suffering is suffering is suffering. It's not a good thing. It's painful. Jesus says, do not be afraid of painful things. Just the other day, I was counseling with a young man on the telephone who is being tested. And I said to this young man, you know what? I don't like God's program because the only way God has one method of making us stronger as followers of him, and that is testing. I'm not in favor of that program, but it's the program. It's not what I would choose, but it is what God chose. And this particular young man is very muscular. How did you get those muscles? You went to the gym and you caused yourself suffering. You caused yourself suffering. Because you had a goal in mind that you felt was a worthy goal and the suffering was the price you had to pay and you were willing to pay that price to reach. Well, that is exactly the same concept going on here. God purposes eternal rewards for us and suffering is what qualifies us. What did Jesus say in the very last verse that we quoted from earlier from Matthew 10? Do not fear, therefore. Do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Do not fear. You will You will suffer, but I am caring for you. I am caring for you. Even in your suffering, I am caring for you. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and so when it happens, don't think it's because I've forgotten you. No, I'm telling you ahead of time. You are going, the devil is going to throw some of you into prison. It won't be a surprise to me. You won't hear a giant oops from heaven. Do not fear any of those things which you are, are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. That you may be tested. Testing is painful. And you will have tribulation, testing, 10 days. 
Oh, there is an end. I have determined when it will begin, and I have determined when it will end. He will not test us above what we are able. Now, we may reach the end of the test with shaking hands and with feeble knees, but he will not allow our knees to buckle if we cry out to him for the strength of his Holy Spirit, he will allow us, he will strengthen us to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm reminded of our brother Tracy's testimony of the Yazidi man. As he and his wife were in southern Iraq, they're helping Yazidis. By the way, Yazidis are Zoroastrians. They're not Muslims, they're not Christians, they're Zoroastrians. And this Yazidi man carried across 20 miles of desert on his back his wife because she so desperately needed medical help with one bottle of water that she alone drank from. And for 20-plus miles, he carried her across the desert till he got to this place where Tracy and his wife and their fellows were there to help them. And Tracy immediately said to this Zoroastrian Yazidi man, the one who helped you was Jesus of Nazareth. He was strengthening you to make this trip 20 miles across the desert with no water with his wife on his back. And the man's reply was, yes, I know he did. I could feel his hand on my back pushing me all the way. I will not test you. And he immediately came to faith in Jesus Christ and vowed that when his wife had recovered her health, they would be going back to their people with the gospel. And you will be tested 10 days. You will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death. Wait a minute. That's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to be, be faithful until the cell door opens. Well, didn't he in a sense just say that? Be faithful until death? Isn't that our step into his presence? That amazes me when I see these pictures of the people being martyred by ISIS that are on the internet. And here, this is about a year ago, this man who was there in Iraq, and they're going to hang him to death because he will not renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a series of several photos. This guy is grinning from ear to ear. He's about to be hanged to death, and he's grinning from ear to ear. He is so excited. Could you imagine being the killer, the hangman? The last picture of his, uh, is of this man hanging, dead. But he's not daunted. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. God supplies his Holy Spirit to sustain and in fact gladden his people in the worst of circumstances. And that is a testimony to the persecutors, many of whom come to Christ. 
many of whom come to Christ. Because they ask themselves the simple question, by the help of God's Holy Spirit, what does this man, what does this woman, what does this child know that enables them and strengthens them and undergirds them to be able to embrace death with gladness? They're supposed to be trembling and crying out in agony and fear. And they are not. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And here is Jesus holding out that crown. It's just on the other side of the finish line. It's just on the other side of the finish line. And then what does he say? Can you hear me? Are you listening to me? Listen to me. He who has an ear. Hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. He who overcomes... By the way, the first step in being an overcomer is when you are dead in trespasses and sins, you're, you're buried under the guilt of your sin, and you are dead in your spirit, and you hear by the word, the word of life coming from God, and you are elevated, and you hear the gospel, and you, by his help, embrace that promise. That's the first step of overcoming. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the lake of fire. Your persecutors, on the other hand, should they not repent. Who ought to, in these circumstances, be the one smiling in confidence. It is the persecuted, not the persecutor. God flips it all around. Pontius Pilate heard the words of Jesus. He knew Jesus was innocent. Why are you not answering the charges? Don't you know that I have power to crucify you or to release you? You, the only thing Jesus said, you would have no power if it had not been given you from heaven. The only thing he said to Pilate. That didn't lessen Pilate's burden. Pilate washed his hands. And of course, God had given a word to Pilate's wife in a dream. And she had warned her husband, who is in charge of the process? Our Lord is in charge of the process. No less today, no less for those people for whom we prayed a few minutes ago, than the Lord Jesus himself. His care is upon each. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. 
Lord Jesus. The reality of the world we find ourselves in, and I use that word in the largest sense as including heaven, what takes place here on earth as well. The reality is you are the kingdom maker and you are the king. As the scripture says, you hold the very breath of the persecutors, your enemies in your hands. They can't take their next breath without divine permission. And so ought we to understand it as your people so that we may walk in the boldness that belongs to us, just as you, our Lord Jesus, did. With an eye on kingdom glory. It's the only glory that matters. There was before you that crown and being placed at the right hand of your father, the place of authority, as he gave the kingdom to the heir, his only begotten son. And now you are day to day, moment to moment, exercising your victor power through your people and in this place. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us, is showing us that we may walk in it. We ask for this outcome, and it is a divine work. We ask for it in your name. It is your promise to us, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.